Theology can be very abstract. You might even call it philosophical. And in a sense, much of the book of Ephesians, as we've been working through the book of Ephesians, really could be described in this way. Uh, We've discussed a lot of really lofty spiritual topics like predestination, atonement, union with Christ, sanctification, the building of a spiritual church, etc., etc. But theology can also be very practical. If you enjoy practical application, if that's your thing, if, if you really like, just, just tell me what to do. Tell me how this impacts my life. Tell me what I can do with this. If you like the practical side of theology, then this sermon is for you today. Today's passage is a great text for the more practically minded, as Paul is going to give us some very specific details of what it looks like to live as a Christian. We've been talking for a long time about gathering together to edify each other, to grow in holiness, to be sanctified. You might be asking, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to walk in holiness. I'm supposed to be sanctified. I'm supposed to believe the gospel. But what does that look like? What exactly? Give me the details, Paul. What should I do? Paul is going to begin to give some of those to us today. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, please? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. I apologize if you made yourself too comfortable because I am going to ask you to stand so that we can show honor to the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. If you would read along with me, for thus saith the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As far as the reading of God's word, please be seated. This text is what I like to call a very specific call to holiness. And I compare that to last week's passage. If you read what we preached on last week, beginning in verse 17 through 24, it was a more general call to holiness, right? Paul was telling us to be holy, but here he's gotten specific. He's really beginning to show us what does holiness look like? What does it look like to be holy? Now, this is obviously not a comprehensive list of all Christian virtue, There are other commandments and good things we can find throughout the scripture. But Paul decided to hone in on some important virtues that are specifically helpful to our communal living. Uh, To reframe it, Paul has given us in this text a list of vices, sins, which are particularly harmful not just to you but to the church. And then he's also given us their opposites, the virtues opposite of those vices which are particularly helpful to the local church. He is also, by the way, in the midst of all of this, keeping our motivations in sight. In order to have strength to to pursue these virtues over vices, 
We need to have proper motivation. It's difficult to be holy. You can't do it without the right mindset, without the right motivation, without the right strength. And so Paul is calling us to pursue virtue over vice. And in the midst of that, he's giving us motivations to do such a difficult task. And so what that essentially means for us today is that if you're a note taker, uh, we're going to be, we have a lot of uh, bullet points. We have a lot of points to this sermon because we're going to be looking at both the vices, the virtues, and the motivations. But I promise you it's going to be much less confusing than it sounds. You could really think of this if you wanted to as a seven-point sermon in total. But what we're going to do with the text is we're going to look at the four virtues, four characteristics of Christian living that Paul calls us to be. And then we're going to look at three motivations to pursue those things. So four virtues and then three motivations to spur us on to those virtues. Does that make sense? Let's begin then with the first of the virtues that Paul calls us to live out. And the first one is that Christians are to be honest. Christians are to be honest. Look with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood... Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul is referring to your entire former life as falsehood. He's not just talking about lying with your mouth. Your entire former way of life before you came to Christ was falsehood. False, it was a false worldview, a false religion, a false way of life. Everything about your life was false before you came to Christ. But once you come to Christ, once you believe in Him, and like we just witnessed are baptized into Him, you put away your falsehood. You put away your former way of life, which is not true. And so that Paul says then it's fitting, now that you have come into the truth, now that you follow the Savior who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, it's fitting then that you would be a truth speaker. Now that you belong to the truth, you should speak truth. And we saw last week, by the way, Paul told us, remember, to speak the truth in love. Christians must be honest people. Christians must be honest people. Our job as Christians is to, in love, tell the truth. Paul is specifically, when he talks about telling the truth to your neighbors in verse 25, he's specifically talking about your local church. He's talking about your local church. And we, and we know that because how does he end verse 25? Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And we know that that term member, based on what we've been reading throughout Ephesians so far, is a reference to the members of the body of the church. So Paul here is very specifically telling us to speak truth to our Christian members, to how you interact with your fellow Christians. But that does not mean that we can't apply this concept outside of the church. Jesus, after all, is the one who taught us that our neighbor, who is our neighbor, and Jesus says, it's anyone you come in contact with. Every single person on God's green earth is your neighbor. So while we should value honesty with all people, we need to especially pursue it in the life of the church. Christians are to be honest. We need to tell the truth. But that's only the first virtue. The second virtue, Paul tells us to be kind. Christians are to be kind. Christians are to be honest. Christians are to be kind. Look at verses 26 through 27 with me. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
You might be wondering, where did I get kindness out of Paul's exhortation to not be angry? Well, let's break this concept of anger down, and then I think you'll see why the application here is to be kind. Paul tells us that we are to avoid anger, and that when we cannot avoid it, we must not sin in our anger. That when you experience anger, you should not experience it. But if you do, when you do, you should put it away. And you should not let it cause you to sin. This is interesting because it suggests, I might add, that people are in far more control of their emotions than we tend to give ourselves credit for. I think especially outside of the Christian church, you live in the secular world, you are very much brought up to believe that your emotions control you. I can't help the way I feel after all, right? I don't choose to get angry, I just get angry. I don't choose to like this or that, I just do. Our emotions control us. But notice Paul here is telling us that we have not just the ability, but the responsibility to not be angry. Paul thinks you in fact control your emotions and your emotions don't control you. That God does expect you and has given you the ability to not be angry to put your anger away, and that when you are angry, that it will not control you and master you and cause you to sin. And so this does suggest, by the way, that anger is not in and of itself a sin. That's often when people go to this verse, that's usually what they're going to this verse to prove, right? You can be angry and still not sin. So anger is itself not a sin. And uh, this is supported by the rest of Scripture, by the way. In our uh, con uh, confession of sin and assurance of pardon, we read one of the many Bible verses that describes God himself as slow to anger. Not a God who's absent of all anger. He just doesn't get there quickly. But he is an angry God. But that can be a difficult comparison because God's anger is categorically much different than ours. So a more helpful example is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, Jesus took on a human nature. So Jesus does have emotions just like us. And what we see in Scripture is that Jesus does, in fact, have anger. And Drew, as I've already experienced, I, I obviously included the slides in the wrong place. Would you mind going back to the verse in Mark? Thank you. I apologize for that. I don't know what happened. Right there, next one. Look at Mark 3, 5 with me. And Jesus looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, Jesus is a perfect man. Jesus never sinned, yet Jesus had anger. So being angry is not in and of itself a sin. If you live in a fallen world, you're going to get angry. It's impossible not to. But here's, here's really what I want us to emphasize. While anger is not a sin in and of itself, the text is not giving us permission to be angry. Right? Just, just because anger is not a sin doesn't mean you get to indulge in it. Doesn't mean that you get to enjoy it. The text is very, very clear that while anger is not a sin, you are called to put it away as fast as you can. I like to say that anger is like playing with fire. It's dangerous. Fire is not a bad thing in and of itself, but in most contexts, fire is dangerous. Most of the places in your life, if you were to see a fire, you wouldn't want it there. There's a time and a place for fire, but most of the time, if something's on fire, that's a bad thing. Fire is dangerous. It's not in and of itself evil, but it is dangerous and destructive. And anger is like that. It's not in and of itself evil, but it is dangerous and destructive. And how do we know that Paul wants us to put away anger? Well, we see that again in verse 26. He tells us to be angry and do not sin, and then immediately tells us 
do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's just another way of saying don't go to bed angry. Whatever anger you experience today, it needs to be gone before you go to sleep. It's not to fester. You're not to hang on to it. You're not to indulge in it. You're not to let it grow. Your responsibility as a Christian walking in the newness of life is to put your anger away immediately. And this is especially, remember the context, this is especially true with your brothers and sisters in Christ. As much as we would like it not to be true, the fact remains that I'm going to do things that anger you. And you guys are going to do things that anger me. And you're going to behave in ways that anger each other. One of the quickest ways for us to destroy this church is to let our anger fester. Is to live mad at other people. If someone in your church makes you mad, that's okay. Put it away. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul is, in fact, so concerned about anger, and you're going to see now the transition into kindness, that he actually comes back to it. He tells us in the verse we just read in 26 not to be angry, and then he comes back, and he not only tells us to not be associated with anger, but he gives us a whole bunch of sins that are all related to anger, I would argue are caused by anger, and he says, put away all of these things. Paul wants us to be completely disassociated from anger and all that anger produces. Look at verse 31. He returns to it with a list of vices that we need to put away. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now some of our Bibles will use different words in, in this list. And so let me just give a brief understanding of all these things that Paul says. Uh, according to the ESV, we are to put away bitterness. And what is bitterness? It's a resentment of the past. Right? If you are upset with how God has ordered your life, if you're angry with the life that God has given you, then you're bitter. And bitterness is not what Christians are called to be. We are also uh, told to put away wrath which is simply rage, temper tantrums, outbursts. Your anger cannot get the better of you. Your anger cannot explode. That's wrath, and you need to put that away. He also lists, according to the ESV, clamor. What's interesting about this word is this is kind of a looser translation. A more literal translation of this Greek word is just the word for shouting. We're told not to yell. We're told not to shout. And we know in context, like, yeah, they're... Your friends across the street, hey, you can yell at him. So we know this is, this is sort of a poetic use of the term shout. So that's why the ESV says clamor. So the idea then is primary, primarily that of fighting, of lacking restraint, yelling at each other, bickering, fighting. That's why they say clamor. We're not to be fighting and shouting at one another. Paul also lists slander. Now this is an interesting one because this is the one that you would think doesn't belong to anger. This is a sin of the mouth, which he brings up in this passage. But the reason I think it's appropriate to, call, to attach it to anger is because what is slander? Slander is to intentionally lie about another person. And the reason we slander, when we, when we lie and we know we're lying, it's because we have the motive to destroy them. So slander really does come up from a place of anger, of hatred. I'm mad at this person. I want to cause harm to their social life, so I'm going to spread a rumor about them that isn't true. It's an act of anger. It's an act of hatred. We should not be slanderers. We should not tell untruths about other people, especially in our own church. And then the final vice outside of anger that he lists is malice. Put away all malice, which is simply a desire to cause others harm. 
Someone makes you mad and your immediate instinct is, I want something bad to happen to them. Put that away. Put that away. These are all forms of anger that should not characterize our lives. So yes, while Paul does recognize that anger is inevitable in this life, anger will come. But when it comes, Paul says, you must do away with it. One last point on this, I just want to bring your attention to the fact that all throughout what we call the wisdom literature of Scripture, there are books in the Bible that are just written to practical living. We, we, we refer to typically the Psalms, the Proverbs especially, Ecclesiastes, and even in the New Testament, the book of James. These are books, the wisdom literature, are just written to teach you how to live wisely. And within the wisdom literature, we have constant exhortations to not be angry. I have a couple of them, just a couple of them for you too on the screen. The first one, Ecclesiastes 7.9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Ecclesiastes, is, if anger lives inside of you, if it's lodged in you, it's taken up residence in your heart, you're a fool. That's a foolish way to live. It's a dangerous way to live. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Another one from the book of James. James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You're not going to please God by acting on your anger. It's dangerous, so put it away. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This list of vices then, let's transition a little bit now, it helps us to see what the opposite virtue is. Right? If, if, if I'm not to be angry, what am I to replace that with? What is to fill that gap? And you might think uh, something like joy or peace or happiness or gladness. But I think Paul says the opposite of anger is kindness. And I think he does that because anger so quickly leads to cruelty. Anger leads to hatefulness. Anger leads to cruelty. And so the best way to combat your anger is to be kind. We, I think we see this in verse 32. After immediately telling us to put away of all forms of anger in verse 31, what do we replace that with? Verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness, the definition of kindness is very general. It's just generally speaking, doing good to others. Anytime you do something good to a person, you're being kind to them. If you're a person who struggles with anger, you want to know what's the best way to fight it? Go be kind to people. Go be good to people. Go be good to your enemies. Just as Jesus says, we don't only just not curse our enemies. We bless them. Go be kind to an enemy and see what that does to your anger. It will rage, kindness will rage a holy war against all of your anger, bitterness, and wrath. We are called to be kind, to do good unto others, not to be angry. But what Paul does is he takes this very broad term of kindness and he gives us two forms of it, two of the most important forms. There are lots of ways to be kind to people, to do good to people. But there are two incredibly important ways to show kindness. The first one he mentions is, as the ESV puts it, tenderheartedness, which this is just simply means sympathy and compassion. Have compassion especially for your fellow church members. Almost any time someone behaves in a way and it bothers you, there's usually more to the story behind that. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but if you can show sympathy and compassion, it will help you not to just hate them. 
If you can try to understand their situation, understand why it might be causing this, and, and be compassionate and sympathetic about it, it will help you not to be so mad at them. We are to have tender hearts for our church and for the people outside of our church, and that is how we avoid being angry with them. But another way to show kindness is also forgiveness. We are called to forgive. I would argue that this is potentially the greatest act of kindness, one of the most difficult act of kindnesses that we can show to people. As Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You want to not hate someone? You want to not be angry with someone? Whatever they did to make you angry, you ready for this? Here's how to put your anger away. Forgive them. Forgive them. Just like when you made God angry and he forgave you, when you make them angry, forgive them. Forgiveness rages war with anger. Compassion rages war with anger. Kindness rages a war with anger. And so this is why I say Christians are not to be angry, but what are we to be? We are to be kind. The gospel compels us to be honest. The gospel compels us to be kind. But our third virtue, the gospel compels us to be generous. Christians are to be generous. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Christians are not thieves. Christians do not covet our neighbor's private property, and we especially do not steal our neighbor's private property. We do not take what doesn't belong to us regardless of its value. It doesn't matter how important it is. It doesn't matter how cheap or expensive it is. We don't steal. We don't take what doesn't belong to us. But what I love about this passage is notice how Paul tells thieves to repent. When you're a thief and you become a Christian, you're supposed to put away your thievery. But notice, he doesn't just take us from thievery to non-thievery. Right? Thieves don't just stop becoming thieves. The gospel is so transformative and so good that it actually completely reverses course. Thieves don't just become non-thieves, but what do they do? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share. Thieves don't just become non-thieves. Thieves become generous. Takers don't become non-takers. Takers become givers. We completely turn course in the gospel. We work with our hands. We do honest work so that we can give, so that we can share, so that we can be generous. This is, by the way, not the only place the Bible talks about working hard. The Bible all throughout from Genesis to Revelation, God puts a high value on honest work. It's really easy for people to think working is, is part of the fall, it's a curse, it's sin, but that's just simply not the case. Uh, sin made work miserable, but work in and of itself is good. Adam was called to a job, to a vocation before the fall. Adam was given responsibility and hard work before the fall. God loves work. The kind of American ideal that you work really, really hard so that you make enough money so that you can stop working and just sit on a beach one day, that's not biblical. God is not calling you to be a non-worker, to work so hard that you don't have to work anymore. Work is good. 
Now, work comes in all different shapes and sizes. I'm not saying you can't retire from a particular vocation, but there is an aspect in which we are called to work all of our lives because the Bible puts a high view of work. Working hard, by the way, so it's not just like this American patriotic, you know, pull, your, pull up yourself by your bootstraps and get to work. It's not just so much of an American thing. Its roots trace back to the Bible. But really what Paul is emphasizing here, while Paul is obviously emphasizing hard work, the Bible throughout, whenever it talks about the goodness of work, the Bible gives different reasons why work is good. There's not just one reason, there's multiple reasons. And Paul gives us one here, and that's what we are focusing on. According to verse 28, why is working so important? It's because it enables you to be generous. Work is a means to the end of having something to give. And so what's so beautiful about this virtue is this here is how you can cultivate a godly desire for riches. I know many young Christians who are, when they, when they, they first graduated college and they, they tried to pursue very lucrative careers. And they will tell you that the reason they wanted to pursue those careers is they want to be rich. And why do they want to be rich? Because they're greedy because they're evil capitalists. No, they will almost always tell you because my entire life, I've never been able to bless other people. I've always been a taker. I've always needed help. I want to be in the position where I help others. You see, there are godly desires. There are godly motivations for riches. It's okay to desire wealth. It's okay to be rich. As a matter of fact, I want us to see this. Look at uh, what Paul's instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice what Paul doesn't say in that text. He doesn't say, as for the rich in this present age, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and go be poor. Because poorness equals holiness. You can't be holy if you're rich, so get rid of your riches. He doesn't say that. He's, the rich can stay rich, but there's a right way to be rich, and there's a wrong way to be rich. And the right way to be rich is to not set your hope on riches. And the right way to be rich is to be generous with your riches. So it's okay to be rich. And it's okay to desire to be rich provided your motives are guided by generosity. Paul wants us to earn money and materials so that we have something to give to the needy, especially to the needy in our churches. Paul calls us to have generous hearts. And before we move on, I cannot miss the opportunity to just briefly thank you all so much, truly, sincerely, for your faithful tithes and offerings, for all of your faithful giving. Tithing is one of the ways that you, you, that you showcase your generous heart. It's one of the ways that you help the needy and fellow church members. We have an entire budget set aside for emergencies. When you give to this church, you are putting money in to help the needy among us. But we talked about this morning, it's not just for big emergency expenses. Even the things that seem small and irrelevant are incredible acts of kindness to your fellow church members. I said this in this morning in Sunday school. We went outside for the baptisms, and, and Lord bless us with kind of a beautiful day today. It's not too hot. But imagine if we were worshiping outside all summer long here in Roswell. Would that be fun? 
No. What a blessing it is to come inside of a building that has lights and microphones and air conditioning. And you want to know why we have all that? Because you give. This electricity isn't free. The air conditioning isn't free. These microphones, this projection, nothing in this room is free. Nothing is free. You paid for it. And you blessed your fellow church members. You're telling each other, I don't want you to worship outside. So I'm going to help us pay for this. All of the reconstruction we're doing in there, that sanctuary is going to be a huge blessing. So thank you to those who have given money to it, to those who have given time and energy to it. All of your tithes and offerings, by God's grace, we will continue to use them to the glory of God and for our mutual edification. It is good to be generous with our stuff. Christians are called to be generous. But nevertheless, we must move on to our final virtue. Christians are to be honest, kind, generous, and lastly, encouraging. Christians should be the most encouraging people in the world. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. As the ESV renders it, Paul forbids us from corrupting talk. Uh, this can be translated as language which rots or decays. Paul's using a metaphor here. Don't use language that rots and decays, corrosive language. The general picture is not to use evil language. Regardless of how you translate it, what's the idea? The idea behind corrosive or corruptive or evil talk includes obscenity, abusive language, and gossip. In other words, Christians need to be wise with the words that we use. Not only should we not curse and use filthy, vile language, but even more importantly than that, you want to know what's, when you think about sanctifying your mouth, one of the first things we almost always go to is not cussing. Now, that is actually part of the word here. You shouldn't use cuss words. But that's not really what Paul is focusing on here. Paul, again, is focusing on what? The mutual edification of the church. He's primarily concerned with language that we use which tears other church members down. Slander. Gossip. We have no business speaking negatively about our fellow church members, especially behind their backs. I've noticed in my own life, you know, sometimes I think part of what makes it so easy to gossip and sometimes in, in conversation with friends, sometimes we just, we don't have a lot to talk about. So we start talking about other people. Let me just encourage you, it would be better to sit in awkward silence for 10 hours than it would be to, sp to spend one second saying something negative about a church member behind their back. We need to speak words that encourage, that build up that are right for the occasions. We do not need to be speaking words that tear people down. There's that old cliche. You've probably heard it when you were a kid. You probably teach it to your children. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. I think there's wisdom in that. The only words that should come out of our mouths should be gracious words to edify and encourage those around us. If the only words that you can come up with are negative and corrosive, don't speak. Don't speak. So those are our four virtues. Christians are called to be honest, kind, generous, and encouraging. But obviously, as has been on the case as we've been working through the second half of Ephesians, Paul is, is, is so careful. I just love the Apostle Paul. He is so careful to, as I've been saying over and over again, not just beat us over the head with morality. 
Like up to this point in the sermon, that's what it's felt like, right? I've just kind of said, hey, be a better person, be a better person, be a better person. But that doesn't ever get anybody anywhere. Right? So those are the practical steps. Like if you're asking, what does, what does holiness look like practically? Well, here are four very practical ones. Speak the truth. Be kind to people. Be generous with your money. And speak encouraging words. Very practical. But we cannot miss sight of the motivations to do these things. Is, is Paul just telling us to do it for the sake of doing it? Like where is this coming from? Well, all throughout the text, Paul gives us different motivations to be virtuous different motivations to avoid vice. And I want us to look at three of them. We'll we'll close with these three motivations to avoid vice, to pursue virtue. And the first motivation we have to not perform any of these vices listed is this. Vice is destructive. Vice is destructive. In other words, I love, Paul is appealing to utility. He's appealing to pragmatism in this passage. What does that mean? Quite simply, Paul is telling us what does and doesn't work. He's telling us what does and doesn't work. He's telling us the things that will ruin your life versus the things that will improve your life. I think a lot of times we as Christians are really fearful of ever admitting that the Bible does this. And we do that for two reasons. Number one, because there's a heresy out there called the prosperity heresy where people take this principle and take it way too far and they basically teach like if you give me money God's going to give you a million dollars and if you do this for me God's going to bless you and so we we really try to emphasize that we we don't we don't necessarily want to obey God just because we think there's some payoff at the end right and it just secondly it just doesn't sound very pious to say well why are you following God's law well because it's got it got a nice return on it right I know that doesn't sound very pious and if that's that's the only reason we obey God that would be a problem But we cannot ignore the fact that I can point you not just to this passage, but to lots of passages where the biblical authors are not afraid to compel you through utility, through pragmatism. He's trying to tell you, you want to sin? Go ahead. See how that works out for you. Go ahead. See how that works out for you. He's appealing to utility. Sin doesn't work. It makes things worse. It doesn't make them better. Where do I get that from? I get that from the entire first half of the paragraph, of the passage. Forgive me. Look at what he says in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one of another. What's he trying to communicate there? Remember, he's going to use, again, later on, Paul loves to use this analogy of being members of the body. How well would your body function if your different body parts could lie and deceive one another? How many things would you get done in the day if your eyes could lie to your nose? Or if your feet could lie to your hands? Or if your lungs could lie to your stomach? The body needs to be in unison to work. The body needs to be working together with transparency in order to get anything done. We are members of one another. If we're speaking lies and dishonesty and truth, our body's not going to work. The church won't work. We will not make it very long as a church if we speak lies. He's appealing to utility. But if you think that that's not the case, it gets even more explicit. Look at verse 29. He says something very similar to what he said in 25. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for what? Building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What what is the principle that guides our language? Pragmatism. I I want to say to you, whatever is going to make you better. 
I want to say to you whatever's going to help you, whatever's going to encourage you, whatever's going to build you up. We're not just given a list of good words and say those good things. We're specifically trying to make each other better. And so the opposite of this is what? Corruptive language will do what? It will corrupt us. Our church will be rotted and decayed and we will break down over time if we do not use our words wisely. By the way, this is technically a rabbit trail, but let me just say this. This requires us to understand an important principle that words are powerful. Words are very powerful. Look at what uh, the book of James says. The whole James chapter 3 is all about words. And I would encourage you to read James 3 in its entirety. But look at these three, two verses. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force to set ablaze by such a small fire. Does James think that words are powerless? Or can words burn an entire forest down? And let me give you, I gave you one old cliche that I liked. Let me give you an old cliche I don't like. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words can destroy you. Words can destroy people. You can ruin someone's life simply by saying evil things to them. Words are powerful. And so what is Paul doing? He's leveraging this pragmatically, practically. Paul knows that certain ways of speaking will set this church ablaze. He's saying, if, if you don't speak encouraging words, you won't be a church for very long. You're going to corrode, you're going to break apart, you're going to split up, and you guys are going to have your lamp stamp removed. He is appealing to pragmatism, to what works, to what is going to keep our church alive. He does this yet again in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The reason you are to not steal and work is to help others. Again, he's appealing to pragmatism. Let me just, I, I think you'll get the point, but I want us to see how much Paul is emphasizing this because he does it with all of the virtues. He does it even with anger. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The ESV translates this as opportunity. It translates it very loosely. A more literal translation in your Bible might say something like a foothold. Do not give a foothold to the devil. I prefer that translation because I like Paul's using a metaphor that I think is really helpful. What does it mean to give a foothold to the devil? Let me just give you a brief analogy. Although it's not very popular here in southeast New Mexico, where I moved from Colorado, rock climbing was a relatively popular sport. I tried my hand in it a couple times, but I do not have the ideal body type for a rock climber. You need to be very flexible, very light, and have very strong grip, and I have none of those things. So it's a bad sport. But even though I'm terrible at rock climbing, I understand the basic logic of it. I understand that the flatter and smoother a wall is, the harder it is to climb. That's why a beginner's rock climbing wall is going to have tons of cracks and rocks and outposts that, that give you lots of opportunities to put your hands and your feet, and you can scale that wall really, really fast. This is the metaphor Paul's using. He's saying, when you came to Christ, 
Imagine metaphorically this protective wall went up around your soul and it's smooth and it's flat. But every time you get angry, it cracks that wall. It puts little footholds and rocks in that wall and Satan goes, I can scale this thing now. I can grab onto this and get onto the other side. Paul is trying to tell you that as long as you arbor anger, you are giving Satan the opportunity to come into your life and destroy you. Anger is opening the door for Satan to control your heart. He's appealing to pragmatism. He's saying this, do you want Satan to run your life? No? Then don't be angry. Anger will ruin you. That's pragmatism. And that's what he's appealing to. Don't give Satan an opportunity. Put your anger away. That's utility. But let's see some of the other motivations he gives. Very, very important. We can be brief, but don't, don't think that because we're being brief that these are important. I would argue these are more important than even the pragmatic arguments he gives. The first reason to avoid vice is because vice is destructive. The second reason is because vice offends God. Look at what our sin does in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know what's your motivation to be virtuous? Every time you sin, you grieve the God who loved you and saved you. That really should be motivation enough. You see, when I was a young child, I obeyed my parents because I didn't want to get spanked. But as I grew up, I didn't care about the spankings. I wanted to obey my parents because I loved them. Because I respect them. And I don't want to disappoint them. That was a motivation enough for me to try to obey my parents. That's the healthy place we need to get with God. God doesn't have to threaten to send me to hell every time I sin for me to want to be holy. I just don't want to offend him. I don't want to disappoint him. And that's why I'll never understand d different people who, who reject the fact what we believe at this church that you are saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. I'll never understand why everyone's first objection to that is, well, I guess I can just live however I want. Because the assumption behind that is the only motivation I possibly have to be holy is if hell is threatened to me. But I think the Bible, it does use that as a motivation. But the Bible gives us lots of motivations. Why is it simply not enough to say, God saved me, I love him, I don't want to disappoint him, and that's why I'm going to be holy. He doesn't have to threaten me. I love him. Why are you holy? Because when you're not, it grieves the spirit who is going to bring you to redemption day. Be holy because to not be offends God. And what's the last one? Vice is destructive. Vice offends God. Lastly, vice contradicts the gospel. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one, one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we are saved by the gospel, it causes us to reciprocate what we have received. Why would we not be kind to other people? when Christ was so kind to us? Why would I not forgive other people when I have been forgiven of so much myself? And here's what you can't say. Well, you can't say, well, well, well the reason is because they don't deserve it. Those people who made me mad, they don't deserve forgiveness. Those people who are angering me, they don't deserve kindness. And you know what our response is supposed to be? That's the point. Neither did you. Neither did you. How dare we Look at someone and say, they offended me. They made me angry. They do not deserve my forgiveness because I'm going to withhold that from them. Imagine where you would be if God did that to you. I don't know where you'd be right now, but I know you'd be when you died. You'd be in hell. 
God forgave you when you didn't deserve it. God was kind to you when you didn't deserve it. So how dare we look at others and say, you don't deserve my kindness. Of course they don't. That's the point. Of course your church members don't deserve your forgiveness. Of course, that's not the point. We're not in this church to do what's deserved. We're in this church to be gracious and to build each other up and to model the gospel. I love the way one of my favorite theologians, Charles Hodge, put it, that God forgives us far more than we can ever be called to forgive others. God has forgiven us so much more than what he asks us to forgive in others. So you want to be holy? Be motivated by the gospel itself. God has forgiven you freely and mercifully in Christ. So turn and be kind and forgiving to others. In summary, if you believe in Christ, you are to be honest, kind, generous, and encouraging with your fellow church members and with all of your earthly neighbors. And you should do this because it will bless and, sh- and, and make your life better. Because it will not grieve God. And primarily because this is the way that God in Christ has treated you. 